Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teamwork, A Better Way podcast. I'm Christian Napier, and I am joined, as always, by my amazing, magnificent, fantastic, <laughs> and glorious co-host, Spencer Horn. Spencer, how you doing? Well, that's a little hyperbolic, but I am great. Thank you so much, Christian. Wonderful, wonderful to be with you. Well, it's great to be with you, and uh, it's been a bit, uh, it's been a minute since we since we last spoke, so so uh, catch us up. Where have you been lately, and what have you been doing? Uh, just over the weekend, I, last Friday through yesterday, was in Las Vegas, working with some clients and visiting my daughter and her family that that lived there, and running out in uh, Red Rocks, doing my favorite trail loop out there. And I got home late last night, and so I had a little surprise uh, on my doorstep. I got a text. There was a package that said it had chocolate and, and fruit, and I was like, what in the world is is that? And so I called my son, hey, will you please go get that out of the sun, because we hadn't got back. But there was this amazing package from a client that I worked with the week before that said, thank you, Jana and Spencer, for making our team feel so special. I have never had that happen. That was just, that was amazing. So that was uh, that was my weekend. How was, what, what's been going on with you? Wow, that sounds amazing. Uh, our weekend was really low key. I mean, my my wife made uh, Zuppa Toscana, you know, like the Olive Garden soup. It's really, really tasty. And we had our son and daughter-in-law over for dinner on Sunday and, uh, uh, and you know, just did kind of chores and things on, on Saturday. So it was it was a pretty relaxing weekend all in all. Uh, but uh, I'm super excited, Spencer, to reconnect with you and even more excited uh, for you to introduce our guest today because she's absolutely fantastic and and I can't wait to engage in a really interesting conversation with her. So Spencer, over to you. Yes, thank you. I am going to actually bring her on the on the camera here so that we can all all see her as I talk about her. This is Laura Silverman, and Laura is a so, a clinical social work therapist out of Atlanta, Georgia, and. She is someone that is interested in people learning to use what is known about the brain to create ease in their mind and body. And so we're gonna be talking a lot about that today and really capitalizing on the new freedom to address mental health or mental wellness. And she pulls mindfulness practices off of the mountaintop. That's really kind of keying into our, our topic uh, title and, and bringing it down to where everyone actually lives. and and. She's going to demystify this whole concept of mindfulness and inner balance and all that. We'll get into some of that. And why is she doing this? What is her motivation? It's really to increase the quality of life for the individual and improve productivity in the workplace. Because if, if we're out of balance individually, we're going to bring that negative energy to our teams. And so there's a, a deep correlation, I imagine, uh, that I really want to hear about, Laura. And, and, and to increase resilience in the face of change. We don't have any change going on right now, do we, Christian? I think that's- uh, Absolutely not. Everything's been uh, quite stable for a long period of time here, right? Uh, yeah, and, and she's gonna t teach us how, so I don't wanna let all the cat uh, you know, out of the bag, but she'll talk us, really talk to us how she does that, which is what I'm really, really excited to learn about. I've got my notebook 
ready, Laura, here to, to take lots of notes, as I know our listeners are as well. And if you are listening, and I know several of you are uh, excited to hear f- from Laura and have asked about today, so you can make comments on social media, and we will do our best to respond to those as we go. So let's start off, uh, Laura. Talk about this the title of, of today, which is really mindfulness. It's not what you think it is. What is it? <laughs> oh, there's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Um, well, first of all, like many words that become in favor, we kind of banter them around quite a bit till they almost have no meaning. Um, and I think that mindfulness is one of those one of those words. And so, I like to add to it that it's not what you think because we do spend quite a bit of time thinking, and that is is really part of finding the balance between different parts of the brain. So mindfulness really is the ability to be present in the present moment, but also being accepting of whatever is showing up, which might be change, which might be um, uncomfortable thoughts or memories, which might be uncomfortable sensations in our body. Um, And so that is what mindfulness really is, is the ability to be present. And um, that's, it's become uh, sort of an idea that we have to do certain things like sit in meditation for long periods of time and only people who are, you know, privileged enough to have the time to go to yoga classes and to go on retreats and things like that, that they're the only ones who have access to this notion of mindfulness. And it's well, wait much a minute, Laura, there's a lot of people out there pushing retreats for this. Yeah. And I, I love retreats. I love going to retreats. Those are marvelous, but those are also things that not everybody can do, either financially or time-wise, or they're you know there's a long distance between them and wherever this location is, right? So to be able to have um, access to the same tools, but in sort of bite-sized um, pieces that allow you to get the same benefit, obviously, um, and and. There is a problem sometimes with people who rely on retreats because those are sort of artificial settings. You're being removed from your environment, which is great. It feels good, but it doesn't last because you do go back to the environment that drove you to the retreat. <laughs> and if you haven't learned how to use some smaller skills, some smaller techniques and different ways of thinking about your experience in the actual environment you live in, the benefits that you got from that retreat may not last very long, which is why you often find people who go from one retreat to the next to the next, trying to hold on to that feeling that they got from being away from the environment and sitting in in that wonderful space, usually of quiet and great food and beautiful scenery and all the things that retreats offer us. I I love what you're, you're saying, and it is so true. I worked for an organization that our whole focus was intensive leadership retreats. I worked there for seven and a half years, became the CEO of that company. And you're exactly right. People came back. They almost were addicted to the high that they felt in the retreat. And it's really interesting. You did a mindfulness exercise with us literally moments before we, we came on screen today. And, and I want you to talk more about that. But I, I, I love what, what you're ta- saying. But you, you said something about accepting what's going on or basically the change that's happening around us but to be present is so difficult right now 
there are so many badges and buzzers and buttons and, and notifications and, and distractions. How do you do that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I'm going to kind of say something that isn't very popular, I think, uh, for many folks, and that is saying no to some of those buzzers and notifications and, and all the things that are showing up in our environment. Um, there is this notion that we have to be available and on 24-7, and if we're not, somehow we're going to miss out on something. Um, and I think back, you know, on, you know, I'm old, so I can remember the time before cell phones and before email and before texting and before having to be on 24-7, and yet the world managed to function and we got a lot of work done and maybe we might even had a little more time off um, to rejuvenate and spend time with our families and hobbies and things like that. So um, I don't have the illusion that we're going to let go of all technology. I don't want to let go of all my technology, but I do get selective about where I allow um, sort of those energy drains, those things that draw my attention away from the present moment. So the present moment is important here because it's the only place where there's any action. Where we tend to spend a lot of time is in thinking about what happened before and um, you know how that went and how we might have been wronged or how right we were or just um, um, you know, just enjoying the memory of something, which is awesome, but no one's actually ever figured out how to go back and change anything. So there's no actual agency there. There's no action there. The other place we might spend time is worrying about what's coming next, that deadline that might be due, uh, whether or not I'm going to go to a meeting with somebody, if I'm going to go dinner with a friend, if I'm going to meet somebody new, if I'm going to have to have a conversation with my brother-in-law, you know, whatever the thing is, it might be the future worrying about that. And again, there's no agency there because we're not actually there. And all of us have had the experience of imagining and being certain about how something was going to go in the future. And then we got there, didn't turn out that way at all. It wasn't that at all. We were wrong. And we're always wrong because we're making it up. And so, we want to be able to stay in the place where there is agency. And that's where the present moment is. So trying to create some boundaries around what pulls our attention, what allows us to stay focused in the present moment, what's actually important. And certainly we all hear, you know, we talk about it with our friends and our kids about how social media, you know, you get on something and before you know it, 45 minutes has gone away and you didn't even, weren't even aware of it. It's a, it's a bit of a suck, time suck, energy suck. And so being able to get selective about that is important. Uh, this is fantastic, Laura. Now I wanna kinda of come back to to, to the, the premise that mindfulness can be for everyone and we don't have to necessarily uh, go to retreats or whatever to do that. They're not, not that those are bad, but, but uh, uh, it's accessible to all. And perhaps I can ask you about the sign that's behind you that says inhale and exhale uh, on your wall because we all do that. Uh, <laughs> everything right. a living uh, being uh, uh, does that. So. So what's the story behind inhale and exhale uh, that's seeing behind you on your wall for the viewers yeah. that can see it? Yes. 
So, you know, inhale and exhale is the thing that's most automatic for us. We are doing it all the time. We're mostly unaware of it until we bring our attention to the fact that we're breathing. And even when we do that, we can notice that we're not having to tell our body to do it. It's sort of our body is breathing itself. It just breathes. That's part of that, that primitive brainstem um, area of the brain that is just engaged in our survival. And so that's always present with us. But what's important is that it is always present with us in the moment, presently where we are. It's not in the past and it's not in the future. It's right here. So it's a perfect anchor, which is why in mindfulness trainings and in conversations, it's often anchored to the breath because the breath is easily accessible. It's present. So when we, you know, that primitive part of the brain, the reptilian brain, it's the oldest part of the brain. It's very primitive. It really is only, only concerned with our survival. And it takes signals from other parts of the brain to tell us whether or not to be, you know, afraid or excited, calm, things like that. So it, what it'll do is stimulate um, um, hormones that will cause us to, you know, increase our heart rate, lower our heart rate, um, increase our respirations, lower our respirations. I was joking earlier about hyperventilating uh, as I thought about coming to talk before people, that that's a little performance anxiety that shows up right before I speak with the groups of people. Um, and so that respiration, that inhale and exhale. So it's, it becomes an anchor for, for, the, for being present in the present moment because it's easy, it's reliable. I always say it's cheap, no special equipment, no special training. We've got it, here it is. So we do a really good job of inhaling, right? I can, I can, yep, I can inhale really well. What we don't do a very good job of is exhaling. And so in any kind of um, mindfulness practice, what you want to focus on is not that big, lovely, big, filled up, nice, big breath, although that can feel really good. That's not really where we want to focus our attention. We want to focus our attention on the exhale. There's actually a function in the um, area of the heart where there's a hormone that's released when we can do long, sustained long exhales. And that little hormone is almost like a little spritz. I always think of like the Nordstrom's perfume counter, only this is a spritz you actually want. Right? So it's like a little spritz on your heart cavity that calms that area down. And that occurs with sustained deep exhales, long exhales. So taking the time to just breathe in, just normally, so it's not this breath, right? Which is the tip, when I say take a long exhale, people tend to take a big inhale, it's not necessary. It's just taking a normal breath and then pushing it all out, trying to maybe double it if you can, but even if you just do a, a count of one or two longer on an exhale, that allows the body to start to settle. And that settling is neurochemistry. We're, we're giving a signal to the brain. We're taking some control of this automatic system of, of breathing. We're taking some control of it. In fact, it's the only automatic system in the body we have that we have any control over. So we may as well use it, right? And so being able to take the time to notice the inhale and then just lengthening the exhale, not having to make a big deal out of it, not having to breathe out of your mouth and in your nose or any special technique. No, no box breathing or anything like that. You certainly could do box breathing. 
You can do four, seven, eight breathing. You can do five squared breathing. You can do lots of kinds of breathing, right? But the important thing is to pay attention to your exhale. I have a couple. I, just, I have a couple questions about this. This is, first of all, why, why when I'm tense, am I holding my breath? Because I, I notice that all the time, and I talk a lot about emotional intelligence. Like just now, I'm I'm speaking, and it's I'm breathing in shallow, and I'm not letting it out. And, and I wonder why that is happening. And secondly, I heard that the oxygen actually chemically helps defeat cortisol and other chemicals in our bloodstream to help us slow down our heart rate. Is that true or? Yes, yes, yes. And so does allowing that sort of buildup of carbon um, dioxide in the, you know, we always think of it as being a bad thing, but actually we need some of that for um, oxygen to be released from cells once it's been sort of used. It's kind of some of its release, so it makes room for more, right? So that's that taking the space between the breaths. So when you get taught those box breathings and those types of breathings, what they're doing is they're teaching you to hold your breath right. for a little while so that you can increase that and then release. It actually helps us to breathe more efficiently. Um, but so, but to your question about holding the breath, so, so the body, so the, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the brain. This is a super, super simplistic neurobiology lesson. Um, so when we think of the brain, we really think of sort of three areas of the brain that most influence our perception of ourselves and the environment around us. It's called the triune brain. So the, so the top part of the brain, uh, if you will, is really kind of the neocortex, the frontal cortex. This is the newest part of the brain. It's the part of the brain that has language. It's the only part of the brain that has language. So that's awesome. It lets us store data dates and events, times, who was there, what they said, things like that. Um, it lets us daydream and create and all that good stuff. It's powerful. The middle, sort of middle, just very basically, the middle part of the brain is the, is the large, has the largest influence over us, and that's really the mammalian brain or the limbic system. So that part of the brain is really um, drives um, the innervation of, of most of the cranial nerves are kind of coming down the base of the brain out of that limbic and many other structures. This is a very simplistic description. Um, and then the final section of the brain is that lower reptilian brain, which is the very primitive part of the brain. So the reptilian brain is regulating the breath. The limbic system, however, has stored up every relational experience you've ever had, every physical relationship, you've, excuse me, experience you've ever had, uh, muscle memory, all of those things are stored up in that. And it can send signals to the primitive brain to tell it to slow you down or speed you up. So if we're holding our breath, the chances are that something is happening in the moment that is familiar to the limbic system that was either uncomfortable, anxiety-inducing, something bad happened one time, and there's a guarding that sets up in the body, like there's a bracing. And that can show up in the form of holding our breath or breathing very shallow, that we're really sort of holding. It's almost like we're guarding and holding our body, and we're un often unconscious of it, right? Remember, going back to mindfulness is being present with what's present, including the holding of the breath. Um, but that, by and large, is an activation of the limbic. And sometimes we know why we can come up with a story why, or maybe the frontal lobes will give us a story, remind us, oh, yeah, remember that time when, 
and I had to hold my breath, right? Or I remember that time it was so scary. And as I remember that, I'm holding my breath now like I did then, right? It can happen like that. But often, because there's no language in the limbic part of the brain, we don't always know why we're feeling the way we feel. It can be very automatic. And we just find ourselves um, either breathing in a different way or behaving in ways, you know, I often say most of my work with, with clients and individuals and groups is moving them from, I want to go this way, but I keep going this way. You know, and, it's is, I'm, and I'm telling you this is as I'm speaking, I'm holding my breath. <sighs> but it sounds like in, in a way, as you're describing it, it's almost like a, even a partial or very small emotional hijack in that yes. it's, Indeed. It, it, right. And so I'm not, I'm like, okay, I want to look good. I want to sound good. And so I'm, I'm nervous. Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. So that brings us to how the frontal lobes can really kind of help us and get in the way. Right. right. So, you know, neuroscientists study how the brain functions and are real interested in how we, how it works in terms of this thinking machine. So that mind, when we think of our mind, we're really thinking of that thinking machine. So they think we have something like 40 to 80, 40,000 to 80,000 thoughts a day. Well, and so, then when they, so hold on, who has 40? So is the men have 40 and then the women have 80? Is, is that what's going on? I don't really know. I think it has more to do with okay. language acquisition and things like that. But uh, I, I do know that there is some data that says, you know, women use more words. Uh, well, that's true for so. sure. But probably because they have more thoughts. I don't know if that's that's just anecdotal, possibly, but possibly not sure. Yeah, not sure if they have data to drive to, to drive that home, but possibly. So, so I don't know. The other thing that when they look at the and sort of analyze the kinds of thoughts we have, they tend to be negative. They tend to have the majority of our thoughts have sort of a negative flavor to them. Now, why would that be? Let's go back to sort of this primitive part of the brain, right? So it's job is to keep us alive and when we were evolving that was a very real moment to moment threats to survival existed right you if you imagine yourself out in serengeti and there was some big critter out there that would look love to have you for lunch you know really being aware of that in your environment hearing it seeing it uh, being able to speed up and get away or freeze and hide and maybe the danger will pass you by was a very useful function um, the problem today is that we don't have that experience anymore, but our body is still reacting because now the frontal lobes are telling us stories that feel like threats to our survival. So like you just said, Spencer, you know, I want to look good. I want to sound good. I want that thing. So there's a story that somehow you are not going to do that, that somehow if you don't do X, Y, and Z, you know, you're going to have to move out of town and never see these people again, because you're going to be so you humiliate yourself in such a, you know, incredible fashion. That is sort of the kind of story that's kind of going in the background. We may not be really conscious of it, but if we sit and go, okay, what's happening here? Like, oh, well, I want to perform. Okay, great. So what if you didn't? Well, if I don't, then this is going to happen. And pretty soon, you know, I don't know about you, but my stories, I usually end up living on the street in a box. And so that's where I can go if I allow my thoughts to take me to this these places of fear. Um, and so um, we want to be able to notice that we're having a story in our head. And I call it stories because most of them are negative. They're negative to help us stay on high alert for danger. 
that's the function of it. So while it makes sense the, um, in, order, in terms of a strategy, it isn't very um, helpful to us in everyday life because there aren't you know, saber-toothed tigers around the corner. We are not humiliating ourselves every moment. We're not going to you know, fall into a, a trench somewhere and disappear. You know, things are, like this are not going to happen by and large. And yet we have many, many negative flavored thoughts. The problem too is that human beings, you know, we're different. We have, we do have the frontal lobes that separates us from the other beasties. And so we have this great powerful machine, that mind that can really help us to uh, create and think and language and all those wonderful things, but can also kind of terrorize us by giving us these terrible, scary stories about who we are, how we're gonna perform, how people see us, what our value is, all those kinds of things because they have a naturally negative bent to them, a natural negative flavor to them, so that we stay on high alert for danger, um, they end up becoming something that um, we are constantly on guard from our own internal thoughts. And that becomes where that inner balance that we talked about, I talked about earlier kind of knocks us out of whack because we can actually be in a space where everything is okay, and yet inside our mind, there is a story, maybe a loud story, maybe a quiet story that's sort of a background noise telling us otherwise. And the limbic system, that lovely, powerful part of the brain that helps us to feel sensation and expresses it through um, sensation in our body, doesn't know the difference between something actually in the environment that's going to harm us and us vividly imagining it or vividly recalling a negative experience. And so we can actually feel like we're in trouble, feel like we're in danger in a, in a space where there is no danger. And that's why so many of us are walking around in a highly anxious state and unable to figure out what the heck is happening. And so try, learning techniques to first not take every thought, believe everything that you're thinking, taking everything on as a fact and being able to center your body in the present moment with what's actually happening in the moment, not what your mind is telling you is happening. Christian, I know you have a question, but before I turn that over to you, I, I have so many and I'm gonna hold those for a second, but we have several comments I've been throwing a few up there. I don't know if that's throwing you off a little bit, uh, Laura. No, it's fine. No, it's fine. <laughs> but thank you, Shayla Rodriguez and Julissa Powell, for your comments. And also, we have a, a comment here from Molly. You, you got all your fans out uh, today, Laura, that are that are joining us, which we are are grateful for. Uh, yeah, I, I I'm super grateful for them, and I'm really really grateful for this conversation. Uh, I know for, for, from my experience that, that there are some things that, that cause me anxiety. There are situations that, that perhaps kick this limbic system into gear. Uh, and, and for example, uh, the, the uh, political situation and all of the discourse that goes on with it, I find myself, I can't really even watch it anymore. I can't read comment sections uh, in, online because it just causes me so much anxiety. But then I think to myself, and so I know that I can, I can, uh, I can control that part of my environment, but just avoiding those uh, situations. Uh, 
But sometimes there are situations that are not avoidable, you know, and you just have to deal with it. So what do you do if, if you're, you're, you're in a situation or you're in an environment where you don't really have control over it, but it's, but you can feel it, it's causing you this anxiety, it's causing you to tighten up. And now I understand from talking to you that it's my limbic system that is trying to prepare me so that I'm not going to be damaged in, in some way. So, you know, what do we do in situations where we, we, we can't necessarily kind of remove ourselves? We don't have total control over our environment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so this is the, you know, this is where kind of practice comes into to, um, to sort of this kind of work is being able to develop some tools and some mindset uh, around this and then practicing it. But it's a really important question that you're asking because this is real life. And um, there are lots of us who work in jobs that we don't like, work with people that don't treat us well, um, maybe in relationships that can be charged and difficult sometimes. And, um, and so that's a really important question. So, so the most important thing is to be able to stay center in your body and recognizing the story your mind is telling you. So I'm just going to sort of an example of, I know um, I was talking with someone recently who um, was running her um, weekly staff meeting and um, is convinced that there are two uh, staff members who detest her and who are working against her and, and have, you know, gone above her head and made some comments to people and, and have, you know, kind of been snide in meetings and so forth. And so what's happened is that as she comes into each staff meeting, she's already anxious um, and, and trying to figure out how is she going to prove herself uh, in some fashion to these people who um, she believes are working against her. Um, and so, you know, there's, you know, being the team leader, I suppose she could use, some, you know, some HR support, she could confront these folks, she could talk about, but if, but the fact is, is that she doesn't actually know what's going on inside of those other people. But what she can know is what's going on inside of herself. And so being able to um, allow herself to regulate herself, her felt ex experience, because the fact is, is that we can move in the direction that we want to go with and despite uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. We can do that because we are going to have uncomfortable thoughts and feelings throughout our life, sometimes throughout the day. So being able to recognize that that's possible, being able to, uh, to notice what is actually present. And so I use this um, uh, sort of little exercise with folks. So if we put out our arm and we tense up that arm, that one arm, but we try to keep our jaw you know, our jaw relaxed and the rest of our body sort of relaxed and just tense, tense, tense in the, in the arm and taking a moment to really notice that tension. And then asking yourself, like, where's your, where is your awareness, your tension right now? Where's the majority of your tension right now? For most people, it's going to be on the arm, right? Because they're tensing it up and they're tightening it. Okay. So for just for the ease of math, let's just say that this is one fifth of my body. So one fifth of my body is really, really tight and anxious, maybe really tensed up here. Four fifths of my body are not. Four fifths of my body are actually kind of relaxed or at least neutral. It's where do I place my attention? So our mind is a tool of attention. And so if I'm in a situation that causes me to start to feel anxiety, it's useful to one, try to understand what am I, why, why am I feeling anxious? What do I believe is happening? What is the story my mind is telling me? And then is that story true? 
And what we were going to say initially is, yes, heck yes, it's true. I, I think it. I think I know something and I feel the anxiety, so it must be true. It's true. Then the question comes, is it 100% true? Because most of the stories our mind is telling us are made up. They're distortions and they usually have a negative flavor to them. So if we accept that we may be overreacting, underreacting, misinterpreting what's happening in the environment, if we just leave a little room for a possibility that's true, can we then examine what's happened, pay attention to what's happening in our body? Where is this tension? Where is this anxiety? How do I know I'm anxious? Is it because I'm feeling sensation in my chest, in my arms, my hands are sweaty, I'm breathing shallow, I'm holding my breath, how do I know? Can I pay attention to those sensations? And just like the tensed arm, can I look elsewhere now to see if there's any part of my body that is at ease? And some people say, no, I'm you know, all over, it's all over. And I'm gonna say, unless you're having a grand mal seizure, your brain is not doing one thing. There are many things going on in your body. Our job is to pay attention, to look for them. What else is present? So we have some choices about where do we lay our attention? And if I can find neutral sensation in the body, can I find the part of the body that just feels okay? Then can I breathe into that, notice what that feels like and allow myself to be present with that and enjoy that while I'm in this situation? while I'm in this moment and maybe doing like we did with the little mindfulness exercise in the beginning, move between the two experiences. That part of my body feels really anxious. This part of my body doesn't, huh? And being able to stay with that and see what happens if we shift our awareness. And that's something we can do sitting in a meeting. We can do sitting in our car. You know, we can do it um, while we're standing in line you know, to, to get your favorite donut or smoothie or whatever you do in the morning, right? All these things that we can do, these are small things that we can do, but it takes practice. It's not a simple thing because we are very much seduced by the stories we tell ourselves. We really do believe most of the things that run through our minds. And I'm going to tell you that we are about very creative in the kinds of thoughts that we have, right? So the content may be different, but the nature of the thought is not particularly creative. We have analysis and judgment. We have self-doubt, self-criticism. We have a little bit of fantasy. Planning, but planning can also be fear-based. And so sometimes that's, you know, about judgments and fear and self-doubt. Yeah, don't want to be um, wrong. Right, don't want to be wrong. Absolutely, right? Um, and every now and again, to keep us in the game, we'll have a few thoughts, uh, facts that come through, right? So, so we have like little conspiracy theories that <laughs> there's some little truth. And then we spin out this great story around that that creates um, all kinds of anxiety and, and self-doubt uh, by and large. And the function of that is protective. As irritating as that sounds, it is protective. Because if I withdraw and I hunker down, chances of anything bad happening to me are really reduced. The problem is if I hunker down and I withdraw, the chances of anything wonderful happening to me are also reduced. <laughs> You know, Laura, you were talking about this example of the manager walking into a meeting who had in the back of her mind that two people were 
you know, that's the conspiracy, the, the story that we're telling ourselves. So something as simple as asking yourself, what do I know for certain? And, and part of the exercise is I'm, I'm just regurgitating what, 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 you're, what you're telling us is that become aware of where that tension is and how I'm feeling. First of all, that takes me away from the story and mm -hmm. gives me some space to refocus on what do I know for sure, which allows me to be present for the meeting for the rest of the people that are there, which is what we really want to get to, and that is increased team performance. And that is, you know, that, so I'm, I'm, my book that I'm writing on is the I in team. And to me, mm -hmm. this is exactly what we're talking about because I, I, I talk about similar stuff, but it is working on me so I can be a better asset to the Absolutely. entire team because every individual on that team impacts the team culture. And, and so my, uh, hopefully I got that right. And, and secondly, yes. in your work, what are you seeing? I mean, this is an example mm -hmm. in terms of this level of anxiety and this, this negative self-talk and storytelling, what are you seeing happening today with your clients and what's going on? And, and what do you think are the causes of that? Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, what really kind of spurred me to move away from sort of one-on-one -on -one work to work with larger groups and to talk with business leaders and teams is to, to be able to help overcome some of this, um, this distraction that comes from um, all of the noise in the environment, for sure. But what I'm seeing is increased um, anxiety, increased or, or decreased tolerance for discomfort and for change. And, and really that is directly related to the pandemic. There are many people who've told me, oh, my life didn't change very much. You know, I always kind of work from home. I'm an introvert, so my life didn't change very much. And that is really, really not the case because everything around us changed. There was a bit of an existential crisis when it first started, when we thought it was gonna be a few weeks, then a few months, and then it dragged on and on and on. And then there was a question of when was this ever going to be okay? We lost, you know, hundreds of thousands of people passed away. So we had grief and loss running throughout our society and across the, uh, the planet. So everything really kind of shifted. And then all the things that we thought we could count on, routines and all the things that helped many of us feel sort of aligned with everybody else and, and feeling a part of things, that's all started to kind of fall away and fall apart. And so what I'm seeing is increased anxiety, uh, increased social anxiety. And I, I think that we can really attribute that to this kind of isolation that occurred. So the brain is, first of all, we are wired for connection. We are not solitary um, uh, animals. We are, we came to, we survived by coming together and creating groups. That's how we survive. That's how our brain is wired. So when we don't have connection, when we are isolated, and it doesn't mean, you know, this is uh, obviously we have folks who are, you know, live with people and have their kids and their families and things like that. So they're not completely isolated. But there was a big change in our access to other human beings. And there is a part of the brain, we call it the social engagement system, that really requires um, interaction with other human beings. And it isn't it's sufficient. The Zoom and all the things that we found, all the technology and tools that we found that we could use to keep business going and kind of keep continuing to provide some services that were really important 
um, and it was a great tool to have available to us. It doesn't, it's not sufficient though for way the brain works. The brain actually needs eye contact. And as directly as I can look at a camera, I am not making eye contact with you. You mean you're, um, you're looking at the camera and not at me I, right now? Right, exactly. And if I'm looking at the camera at you, then I look like I'm not looking at you, right? <laughs> and so, right? right. And so it doesn't work. And so the brain actually needs that in order for um, there's a there's a structures in the brain that help develop the sense of trust and, and um, um, bonding and kind of connection. We get that from being with other people. So what I think happened is very much like people who are incarcerated. So they're not alone, right? They're not alone. There's other people around them, but their their access to the world and to choosing who they want to be with and the ways in which they can be with people is extremely limited and changed changed um, uh, the way in which their brain responds. So our brain will adapt over time to the environment that we're in. So when people are released from prison, you know, there are all kinds of challenges that make it difficult for someone to return to society. But one of the things that is also a challenge is how to actually function in society around a bunch of other people, around all of the social engagement and interaction, and it's very overwhelming. And I'm hearing from folks, really capable, um, highly successful individuals who are finding themselves exhausted by social engagements that they have to go to, conversations feeling clunky and not really knowing how to talk to people anymore. Those things are a function of that of our brain adapting to that months and months and months and months and months of isolation. And so what we're what we're going to see now is and clinicians that I talk to and, and I'm in groups that we communicate across the country, the levels of anxiety and depression are way high. And that is in part because of this inability to kind of jump back in. Everybody thought, great, I can go back to restaurants and theaters. I can get out there. Well, guess what? Our brain wasn't ready. And for many of us, it takes time to sort of dip in and dip out and be able to tolerate that level of engagement again. But it's necessary in order to alleviate the fear of our survival. Remember, we are we are pack animals. We need people. And so when we are isolated from them, that sort of primitive part of the brain is concerned about our very survival. Laura, the, there's a McKinsey report that says um, we are experiencing 200, you talk about grief, in, in addition to anxiety that people yeah. may be experiencing, 200 million work days are lost a year just in the U.S., 75 billion for U.S. companies in terms of financial losses from these days of, of missed work, people dealing with these anxieties and, and grief issues, and 60% yes. of people are reporting symptoms of, of mental health. And um, it, what's more concerning, less than one-third of the people struggling with mental health are receiving that that treatment. Right. Is that right. is, is that commensurate with what you're experiencing? Absolutely, absolutely. So this is why mindfulness practices become all the more important. Okay, so there's a wonderful book called uh, Mindsight. It's one word, Mindsight by Daniel Siegel. So he's a, he's a, a psychotherapist, researcher who has done a great deal of work on the ways in which um, mindful practices actually affect the brain and strengthen uh, structures and function in the brain. And so uh, we know that something as simple as doing a short body scan, which is simply just identifying parts of your body, just bringing your awareness to your feet, to your ankles, 
you know, your calves, your knees, all the way through your body and just noticing any sensations that might be present. Some people have a hard time feeling their body. This is a real issue for people who have, have learned to um, use their intellect to try to push through emotional distress. And for some people, for many people, it's a survival mechanism. They needed to do that to be able to survive their, wherever they came from, whatever they were going through. So it's not a bad thing in and of itself um, to be an, an intellectual. Um, however, the action, the limbic system gives us all kinds of information in the body. So trying to get reconnected with the body is critical to our well-being. And so for some people who are disconnected, we literally have to have them put their hand on the part of the body when they scan it. If they can't feel their arms, really, then put your hand on your arms. Can you feel the pressure of your hands on your arms starting there? So starting to turn on those structures, and they are mostly right brain dominant. They're, they work with other parts of the brain. The brain is very complicated. It's not, you know, it's not left or right. Um, but it helps to actually turn on or, or even um, strengthen and build um, brain around the structures that help us to feel our internal uh, emotional experience more accurately. And that in turn allows us to read our environment more accurately. And so simple things like uh, brain scan, excuse me, body scans. We know that if we do a brain scan of somebody who has been doing, if I do a functional MRI today of someone, and then they do the bo uh, body scans every day, if I do a functional MRI of them again about six months later, we will see that there's some changes in the way the brain is firing. It actually sort of beefs up the structures in the brain that help us to um, feel our emotions, feel sensations in our body, um, and to be recognizing what's actually happening to us internally so that we can then accurately interpret what's happening to us externally. So it's a very simple practice. It doesn't take a lot, but it is a practice. It is something that has to be done on a regular basis. And I, I have clients often, frequently, I've done this in big groups and done lead scans and so forth. And people say, yeah, it, it was kind of relaxing. I didn't really get much from it. And mindfulness practices are never, the intention is never relaxation. It's a nice byproduct. If you feel a little relaxed, that's awesome. That's not the purpose. The purpose of all these things is to be exquisitely present. That's active. That's not passive, right? And so being able to get to really paying attention to, huh, oh, I'm feeling a little tightness in my left shin, you know, but, or calf, but I'm not so much in my right. That's interesting. What's going on behind my knees? And feeling sensation moving up the body, just getting familiar with what's present in my body um, and not getting veering off into interpretation or judgment or that's because, you know, like, whatever. We don't know why, because sometimes the limbic is triggering something that's unconscious. Sometimes it is something that's happening, but sometimes it's just a story we're telling ourselves. Like I have to be really cautious about what I say today, right? I have to be cautious how I impress people today. I make sure that I do the right thing, right? That's a story. By and large, you know, I, I do what I do. I know what I know and I'm going to be okay. But the story can really be scary. Well, we're running up against it. Uh, it's been a fascinating conversation. I, I do have one comment and a, and a question, and, and Spencer might have a final question as well. Uh, my comment is going back to uh, the anxiety that uh, people are feeling now that we've been on Zoom calls for two years and are now starting to get back in front of people. Uh, we've, we've seen in the news lately a lot of tension between the C-suite and the workers because the C-suite folks are saying, come back to the workplace and the workers are saying, 
actually I'd rather just stay home. And, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know, until today, for me, a lot of that was just attributed to, well, I have more control over my schedule. I have more freedom. Um, this is easier for me. It's more, it's a better use of my time. I never really thought about the idea that actually being in front of people in person again can cause anxiety uh, and, and stress. And so I really appreciate you bringing that to light. So that was my comment. My question is this, uh, uh, you, you've, you've mentioned quite a bit today about the stories that we're telling ourselves in our brain and, and them being largely negative for, for, you know, our own good, you know, his, uh, evolutionarily speaking, yeah. right. Um, and that we need to develop practices so that we don't necessarily just believe those assumptions. At the same time, we always hear from people, you got to trust your instincts, you got to trust your gut. And so how do you reconcile those things where you've got on, on the one hand saying, well, you're telling yourself a bunch of negative stories, stop it uh, and listen to your body. And at the same time, well, you got to trust your, you, you, we look at the leaders, right? It's like, oh, he trusts his, he trusts his gut. And uh, so, so how do you kind of reconcile these two apparently opposing views? Yeah, yeah, that's really, really important point. Uh, yeah, so if we actually look at people who don't have any kind of mindfulness practice, don't have any time that they spend in contemplation, in, in, which it can be contemplation can be a form of this, sort of just being present with our emotions and kind of being in our body and so forth. Um, even people who use prayer as a form of contemplation. Um, all, people who don't have those practices, but get kind of go from their gut, um, are not always um, actually accurate in their decisions. So they may be successful, but if we really look at their track record, we might see like, oh yeah, that worked, but man, there were a couple things that didn't work so well, right? Um, so, and the reason I say that is because the deeper your practice is, the more connected you become with that gut feeling. In fact, it's referred to as the seventh sense. So our sixth sense is that sense of where we are in space and time, up, down, left, right, feeling our body in space and time is our sixth sense. Our seventh sense is that gut feeling, but that gut feeling is in the body. It's this knowing without knowing how we know, right? So being able to trust that and being more connected with your body is going to make you much more accurate with whether or not this thing that you want to do is going to be good for you or not good for you. And I, and I, and good's not really a great word. I'm not crazy about good, bad, right, wrong. Uh, I'm more interested in, is this decision I'm going to make, is it going to move me in the direction that I want to go in the direction of my values, or is it going to move me away from that? Right? So that choice point, that point in which we are getting ready to make that decision, is where we can often kind of lean into our gut feeling. But if we're not actually paying attention to everything that's present for us, that feeling we may have in our body that we're thinking is our gut feeling may be fear, maybe anxiety, it may be driven by that and not by facts, not by what's actually available to us and what we're actually capable of. And so that's that question. So um, I'm a big fan of, of that gut feeling and using your intuition and kind of knowing things. But I have kind of more faith in my ability to do that than I did many years ago when I was a little devil may care sometimes with um, some of the decisions I made because they just kind of felt right in the moment. 
Well, you know, sometimes those were big decisions and they weren't always right. And if it had been a little bit more ability to be present with what was going on with me internally, I would have made a better decision. So it's that finding that balance um, and, and recognize it. Am I trying to make a quick decision to get out of this, just to get it over with, to get rid of it? Because I'm telling myself a story that may or may not be based in fact. So, and, and am I just being impulsive? And sometimes that, that can feel exciting too. And yet there can be consequences to that impulsivity that, you know, might've been nice if we just taken a breath and felt our body then with present, what was present? Well, I, I really don't have any more questions because I, we, we could keep talking for quite some time. And I, I just want to say, for me, you answered that question, you know, mindfulness, not what you think. I mean, I think a lot of people, according to what you were saying, are thinking it's just a relaxation process. And it's so much more. Yes. What I heard you say, it is a technique or a process to keep us present so that we can act in our best interest and the best interest of the team in a way that helps us overcome our negative stories and, and just really overcome some of those things that are holding us back from being the best that our team needs us to be. That's what I heard from today. Christian? Well, I'm glad you took that away. <laughs> this, has been a, this has been a fascinating uh, a fascinating time with you, Laura. I really appreciate you joining us today and sharing your, sharing your insights and your experience and your expertise uh, with us and with our listeners. And if people want to learn more uh, about how you could potentially help them, uh, whether it's individually or organizationally, you know, helping organizations uh, to to find a better way to work, uh, what's the best way for them to reach out and connect with you? Yeah, I think LinkedIn is a really nice, solid place to start for either. Yeah, so I'm available through LinkedIn, um, just Laura Silverman. And I think right. that's, I, yeah, I think that's in the, I think I got tagged in your notice. So they should be able to find me there pretty easily. All right. Fantastic. We'll look for you on LinkedIn and Spencer. If people want to learn more about the work that you're doing, uh, helping organizations uh, improve their team performance, what's the best way for them to reach out and contact you? Absolutely. LinkedIn message me or altiumleadership.com. That's A-L-T-I-U-M leadership.com. Uh, and Laura, I just want to say it was, uh, it was a little bit fun watching. I threw up those LinkedIn comments to see if you were staying present. And I got maybe a, a little smile, but it was uh, you did a great job staying present. And I'm so grateful to all of uh, our listeners and those who joined who are your fans and their comments. So thank you. And Christian, you know, I apologize. First of all, you have so many great things to say. He always asks the best questions, doesn't he, Laura? Yes, very good questions. I've watched your podcast, so it's it's all it's a it's always a, a delight. Oh, you're so kind. So, Christian, all the work you're doing with uh, effective storytelling and and consulting with major organizations, how can people reach you? Uh, LinkedIn as well. You know, we're all here a part of the LinkedIn family. Uh, you can find me Christian Napier. Just look up Christian Napier on LinkedIn. Uh, also, you can email me Christian at raconto.io. That's r-a-k-o-n-t-o.io, or visit our website raconto.io. Uh, thank you again, Laura uh, and Spencer. Uh, it's been a, a really, really uh, important hour, and I, I appreciate you uh, carving time out for us today. Listeners, thank you as well for participating. Please like and subscribe to our podcast, and we'll catch you again soon.